to the glory of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. What is the story of your life? What is the story of your life? I'm not talking about the Wikipedia snapshot of facts and events, but the narrative by which you view your life. What's that story? We all view our lives through the lenses of story. Think about it. When we introduce ourselves to new people, we usually tell them stories about who we are. When we end the day and we come home together, we share stories about our experiences. Now, I get that not everyone shares long, lengthy stories. In fact, some just simply spit out monosyllabic, you know, short little sayings like good, dull, boring. Maybe they even grunt. We call these kinds of people teenagers. But for the rest of us, we share stories because that's just how we communicate. It's how we think about our lives. And narratives are not just how we view our lives, but they're also the lenses that shape our identity. That is, they don't just simply reflect our personality, they actually form them. You see, not only do they tell us what happens, but they tell us why those things are important. They tell us what it means for us and they tell us who will become because of it. Now, to some degree, our, our, we don't get to choose parts of our stories. That's it. That is, things happen to us in life that are beyond our control, and that becomes part of our narrative. But to another degree, we get to choose our story, meaning we can't always control the events in our lives, but we can choose the lenses by which we view those events. That, too, becomes part of our story, and it's that part of our story that I think is important because we need to choose which story we interpret our lives through wisely. When Jesus entered the world, there was all kinds of different stories people told themselves and different narratives by which they viewed their lives. As we listen, about, listen to these stories, they may sound eerily similar to our own. So, for example, there was a group of very conservative Jewish people known as the Pharisees. And their story was, if I follow God's law, that will make me a good person and God will have to bless me. It's a very common good versus evil or man versus sin story type. If we think about it, it's also a man versus God story. Because what it was saying is if I have obedience to the law, then it means I get to control God's blessing upon my life. Sound familiar at all? We might call this today karma. Or we might call it moralistic therapeutic deism. Or we might just call it bad theology, but whatever we call it, it's a story many people tell themselves. Other people had a different story. The presence of the Roman occupiers in Israel caused some to see their life through a villain-victim arc. That is, the people in power, the Romans, were the villains, and those without power, well, they were the helpless victim. And I think this is a very popular narrative in our own day and age. Culture is increasingly trying to tell us that we need to fit into the narrative that either we are a villain or a victim and we need to act accordingly. Still others, such as the Zealots, saw their story as the hero-villain plot. That is, they were waiting for a leader to rise up to lead them into victory over the villainous Romans. And that story inspired them to be prepared to fight at a moment's notice. It's within this context that in Matthew 5, Jesus preached his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be in Matthew 5 today. It's on page 786. 
But we're going to focus on the whole sermon, the sermon as a whole, not just this part we looked at. Relax, I'm not going verse by verse. It's three chapters long. But we're going to look at Matthew 5. When I was in youth group, I first studied the, the Sermon on the Mount, and I remember thinking the first time I looked at this sermon, good grief, this is a lot of rules. Actually, as a 13-year-old and being new to the faith, I think it was a little more profane than that, but for the sake of our congregation, we'll keep at good grief. That's a lot of rules. But think about it. As a teenager, I thought, man, I thought following Moses' commandments was tough. But now here's Jesus tacking on a whole bunch of rules and regulations. Not only do I have to remember the Ten Commandments, but now I have to remember to be meek and to be gentle and be merciful and to be patient and not to get angry. Doesn't Jesus realize I have a sister? I can't judge people. I can't have bad thoughts. I can't worry. And oh yeah, above all, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Give me a break here. It was insane. It still is kind of insane to think about. The New Testament scholar Daniel Durrani wrote that among Jesus' teachings, the Sermon on the Mount is perhaps the most beloved, the best known, the least understood, and the hardest to obey. The hardest to obey. No kidding. But here's the thing. If we simply read this passage as a set of rules and regulations and commandments to live by, as if this is the way we become one of Jesus' disciples, we will quickly become discouraged. Because it will be very obvious to us that nobody can do this. Nobody can live this way. And so if this is Jesus' standards for becoming a disciple, that's bad news for all of us here this morning, because none of us are going to make it. But seeing this sermon simply as a list of rules misses the point entirely. The Sermon on the Mount is not so much a, a, a list of do's and don'ts, though there is some of that aspect in the sermon, but it's primarily an invitation. It's an invitation to join a better story, a story of hope and grace and redemption. What Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is he's challenging us to look beyond what we think it means to be a good person and embrace a new way of life, a life centered on love and kindness and charity and compassion, a life that causes us to become, as he put it today, salt and light of this world. A life that is centered on repentance from our old stories and then through faith embracing the new story he gives us. Now truthfully, the stories that this world sells us or tries to sell us will be rather alluring. There is on the surface something appealing about them. They, they seem to make a lot of sense. So it's going to be hard for us to repent of those stories and to embrace this new narrative. So the, the stories of this world will say something like, Blessed are the rich in spirit, for God lets good people into his kingdom. That makes sense, right? God lets good people into his kingdom. God blesses good people. I get that. It'll say things like, Blessed are those who hurl insults on Twitter, for they shall find comfort in their self-righteous microaggressions. <laughs> Blessed are the powerful, for they shall make all the decisions. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after success and wealth, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the influential TikTokers, for the adoration of the world will always be with them. Blessed are those who don't know about TikTok. That's actually it. That's all I got there. You are truly blessed if you don't. That's not a joke. 
Blessed are the proud, for their egos will be abundant. Blessed are the vengeful, for they shall always find retribution. There's something appealing about them. There's something attractive. Now, I get it might be a little cringy to hear me vocalize them, but there is something there, because a lot of people buy into these stories. They seem on one level to make sense. But what Jesus shows us in the Sermon on the Mount is that these narratives create an unrealistic expectation. They encourage us to find happiness and satisfaction and righteousness in all the wrong places. The stories that the world wants us to embrace mislead us and at best are incomplete. They tell us that we're in control of our lives. We're the ones in control of our destiny. You've got to be kidding me. I can't even give up coffee one morning of the week and I'm in control of my destiny? They tell us to focus on individualism, materialism, the pursuit of pleasure. But the problem with those things are they will only ever lead us into isolation and vanity and dissatisfaction. So instead, Jesus offers us a new perspective. However, I've got to tell you, unlike the stories that this world tries to sell us, Jesus' story doesn't always make sense at first. It actually seems like it's a little bit backwards and confusing. So he's going to say things like, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the persecuted. Now that doesn't always add up. That doesn't quite make sense. How are you blessed when you're mourning? How are you blessed when you're persecuted? It seems like Jesus has it backwards. Like his whole story is upside down. But Jesus is showing it's not his story that's upside down. It's ours. The stories this world sells us are backwards and confusing, and they've got us confused. Think of it like this. Years ago, I had a colleague in Florida named Father John Spicer. Now, Father John was an interesting character. He was a brilliant mind. He really could have gotten into academics, but he loved nature and outdoors, and so he decided to take a, little, uh, a job in a little church in Wakulla County, Florida. Uh, Wakulla is the backwoods of Florida, okay? To give you a little context or a little set the scene, uh, Wakulla is where they filmed Creature of the Black Lagoon, okay? We are talking middle of nowhere, swampland Florida, but lots of nature, and, and he had a lot of fun. And one of the things he loved to do was underwater deep sea uh, cave diving. There's lots of cave systems at the panhandle, and he would go diving in these things. Every time we'd see each other, he'd try to convince me to go uh, cave diving with him. In fact, one time we were having lunch at Zaxby's Chicken, which is where you go on Sundays because Chick-fil-A's closed in the south. And he told me earlier that day he was cave diving just below where we were having lunch. And it was really cool. And it was all, he almost had me, except for he would tell you about the dangers. You know, you could get lost, you could get stuck, you could run out of oxygen. Very, very fun stuff in my, my opinion. But one of the things I was really surprised about was that one of the big risks is you can become disoriented and lose track of what's up and what's down because you're, you're weightless. And I think, how is that possible? In the dark and, and, and with all the confusion of the moving water, it's really easy to lose your orientation. And so he says that the key there is to pay attention to what your instruments are telling you. And a lot of people end up in trouble when they ignore those instruments. And so they end up going down when they think that they're going up. He says, even when you think the instrument is wrong, trust it. Because it's more likely that you're wrong. 
In the Sermon on the Mount, that's what Jesus is doing for us. The sermon is an instrument that reorientates our lives. And he's showing us a life that is truly right side up. If it doesn't make sense to us, it's not because his story is backwards. It's because the story that we're viewing life through has caused us to become disoriented and lose our perception. What this seemingly contradictory story offers us is a fresh new approach to life. A life that is filled with light and zest. A life that values love and kindness and generosity. And unlike other narratives that tell us, if we just behave a certain way, we can achieve our goals. That is, if, if you just hold on to the right ideology, if you work hard enough, if you gain enough followers, if you're just a good enough person, then life has to bless you. Unlike those stories that are lying to us, Jesus' story doesn't try to change our actions and our behaviors. Instead, he starts by transforming the heart, which is why I think this is a much, much better story than anything else out there. Because history tells us we are really, really bad at changing our actions and our behaviors, aren't we? It is really hard to change our actions and our behaviors. And that's why Jesus starts, not with that, but by transforming the heart. That's why he can say to us today, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. In fact, what he does is he turns the law, and the pro the, the law into what it was always meant to be, a good thing, a blessing to us. You see, he, he can leave the law in place because he fixes the heart first. In fact, he goes on from there and, and, he, and he exceeds what the law commands us to do. He says, Moses told you don't murder. Well, I'm going to tell you don't even hate your brother or sister. Moses said don't commit adultery. I'm going to tell you not to even look at a person lustfully. Now, how can Jesus exceed the law like that when, when our actions and our behaviors are really hard to change? It's because he doesn't start there. He starts with the heart. And what he shows us is when we have transformed, renewed hearts, we don't have to worry about murder or anger or lust or adultery because the desire for those things will no longer be there. So we won't even want to do them. That's why he starts with the heart. Are you seeing why this is a better story? Because it's a story that properly reorient, reorientates our lives and our hearts. And when our hearts are in the proper place, then what we do and what we value and what we aim for in life, those will all fall in their proper place as well. We don't have to fix those things about us. They fix themselves. You know, when Jamie and I got married, she gave me a gift, a book, a little book. It's called um, <laughs> 613 Rules to Living with Jamie, a manual for a healthy and happy marriage. I want to read you some of these rules. All right. Number 232. Always place the cap back on the toothpaste when you're finished. Easy enough. Okay. 314. Back rubs are obligatory once a week. Okay. I've not been so good at that. Ah. I'm a little, I'm, I've got to say, I've got a moral objection to this one. I want to share this with you all. Toilet paper is to dispense from behind and below the roll. Yeah, I know, I know. It's above and over, right? We all know. Here's the thing. If I made it my life's goal to follow all 613 of these rules, I would be in the doghouse more often than not. 
But I instead followed the first rule, which is to love her with my whole heart. And what I found is by following the law of love is that I didn't have then a book of 613 rules to live by. Rather, I had 613 different ways I can show Jamie that I love her. And when I follow the law of love, even when I inevitably mess up, I don't face condemnation, but mercy and forgiveness and grace. That's the kind of story that Jesus is offering us here on the Sermon on the Mount, a story of love and mercy and forgiveness and grace. And it's really simple to make this our story. You see, just before Jesus preached this sermon, he preached his first sermon in Matthew 4. And it tells us how we make his story our story. And it's very clear. Repent and follow him. Repent of the old stories of our lives and follow him into the new story. A story that is about meaning and purpose and hope and redemption. There are going to be all sorts and different types of narratives we can follow. Which one we choose is absolutely important because it shapes our identity. It informs our opinions and our values, and it processes our experiences and our responses. In Matthew 5, Jesus offers us a new story, a story of hope and grace and redemption. It's not a sermon about rules, but an invitation to a new life, a life that is centered on love and kindness and compassion. And the way we embrace this story is through repentance and faith in Jesus. What's your story? What's the narrative you embrace? What's the arc that is shaping your life? Amen.